Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Longwood's Breakfast. Uh, we are joined today by a wonderful group of people to discuss the new digital world and compassion. As always, I am Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwood's Publishing. Uh, to lead us through today is a longtime friend of Longwood's. Uh, we've worked on many projects together and we continue to support each other in uh, many different ways. If you don't know Will, you should follow him on uh, social media. He's very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Will Falk is an executive resident um, at Rotman School of Management at UFT. He is a senior fellow at the uh, C.D. Howe Institute, and he's an innovation fellow at the Women's College Hospital Institute for health system, in, health system Solutions and Virtual Care, and a member of the AMS Healthcare Board of Directors. So without further delay from me, I would like to welcome Will Falk. Will, it's all yours. Thanks, Matt, and uh, thank you for uh, hosting this, and, and thanks to Longwoods for everything you guys do. Um, uh, it's great to see uh, old friends and new online. Um, hello to everyone. It looks like a great audience, and I'm sure that there'll be uh, lots of participation. We're going to talk about digital compassion today, and I'm joined by three terrific panelists. I really must say I've just enjoyed tremendously preparing this call and, and reading some of what they all have been working on. And I think you're going to really enjoy this discussion today. Um, Brian's going to lead us off. Brian Hodges is the uh, Executive VP of Education and Chief Medical Officer at the University Health Network. He's a practicing psychiatrist and teacher. David Wilger is the Executive Director of Education Technology and Innovation for UHN Digital at UHN. And he's actually going to go last but my bio notes are misordered. So I apologize if I just confused the hell out of the panelists. And in the middle is gonna be Jillian Strudwick. And uh, Jillian is the Chief Clinical Information Informatics Officer and Scientist at CAMH. And she's also an Assistant Professor at IHPME. Uh, she's also on the board with me uh, over at AMS Healthcare where we're thinking a whole bunch about uh, uh, digital compassion and uh, have some excellent publications um, and are supporting some programs if you're if you're interested in having a look with that. And that's all I'm going to say before I hand it over to Brian, then Jillian, then David. Brian, you're up. Thank you, Will. A short, punchy intro to this exciting topic. Thanks uh, for having us today. You know, we've just gone under a tremendous shift in the healthcare system that we've talked about for a decade, and it happened almost overnight. At my place at UHN, we have a million ambulatory visits a year and 80% of them went virtual in three weeks. Uh, we have a new health information system coming. I completely practice differently now than I did just two years ago. And when we say digital and virtual, I want to point out that's many tools. Yes, I use video like I'm doing today, but also much more use of the phone, of text, of email. It's a whole suite of technologies. One of our uh, scientists at the Wilson Center, a group of scientists uh, led by Robert Paul is studying this. And one of the main conclusions is everything is changing, but we don't know how and whether that's good or that's not good. Very briefly, two things. What is technology and what is it doing for compassion? So first of all, we have to agree what technology is. My sense of technology is anything that augments human capacity. So right now I'm using a whole bunch of them. Voice, my voice is human voice is weak, a microphone. Sight, glasses, microscope, telescope. Dexterity, knife, fork, scalpel, instruments. So what about compassion? Can technology amplify or augment compassion? Well, I think it can. It can certainly 
improve with things like convenience, booking, scheduling, less travel, and with care, automation, but also in building a connection. We can absolutely build a connection. I'll use a very simple example. It's the compassionate use of my sending a text to a patient I know is not doing well that says, hi, how are you doing? That's a very compassionate extension of my empathy. But all technology distorts. So with a voice that can be buzz or hiss, cutting in or out, or you're on mute, uh, with uh, sight, you know, uh, blurring, distortion. I thought it was so interesting. Matthew just said, hi, I see. Well, actually, I can't see you. So that's a distortion of technology. And with hands, you know, dexterity, we can puncture, rupture, etc. So my main interest today and the main thing we have to talk about is not whether technology can help us augment human compassion. It can. But when does it distort it? When does it add distancing, separate us, cause... Uh, a reduction in the quality of the relationship, including burnout of the health professions. So that's all. Okay, Joy, you're up. Great. Great, thank you. And so I will build on what Brian has uh, introduced to uh, us all. So I wanna speak briefly about why it's so important that technology does not detract or take away from this idea of compassion or compassionate care delivery. And so I'll share with you a brief story. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago, and we had a patient at this event share their experience of their care at my organization, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And this individual shared how clinicians made the difference through two things that they did, and I'll explain to those in a moment, as to why she felt that she received excellent care and why she felt that essentially the care she received saved her life. And so the first was that clinicians provided hope to her. They provided hope in the sense that she could recover, that she could improve, that she could walk down this journey with her care providers, with her family. And the second was compassion. So this was the idea that uh, the providers understood or they attempted to understand where she was coming from, what her journey was all about, and then acted in providing the appropriate assessments and treatments to meet those needs. And so as technology enters more and more into the mental health care environment and in many other environments, we cannot lose this. So we cannot lose hope. We cannot lose compassion. We cannot lose this humanistic aspect of care. So it may come as no surprise that in the past, and when we've had technology implementations in the mental health context, there's often been pushback. Because if you've ever seen a, a Black Mirror episode, you know that technology is the antithesis to humanity, right? And so when uh, a patient portal was first, uh, the idea of opening up notes or the patient portal was first introduced within mental health context, there was this outcry, particularly amongst clinicians, this was several years ago, with some prominent articles published that said, technology or patient portals are going to ruin therapy. And so one of my hats, as well introduced, is an administrator hat, but another hat that I wear is a scientist hat. And so when we implemented our patient portal at ChemH, this was the opportunity to have a look at that impact of the portal on compassion. And what I can say is we uh, spoke to patients, we found out what mattered to be measured, things like trust, things like that feeling of compassion, communication with providers, functioning, um, and, uh, as well as recovery. And while we're still at the end of our data analysis, what I can share, the spoiler alert is it doesn't ruin therapy. 
And in fact, there are many cases and many stories that we heard from patients where it really facilitated that compassionate care relationship. So while we need to be thoughtful in making sure that technology does not detract from compassion, I agree with Brian. I think that technology very much can facilitate a compassionate interaction. And I'll stop there. David? Well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. And I'll just acknowledge uh, some of the work that we've done in this area. AMS has been so supportive of, so I appreciate that. I think I'm going to uh, follow closely on, on Jillian, and I wanted also to start with a story. Um, and my story is not my own, but it actually comes from the late Kevin Leonard. Some of you uh, may remember Kevin Leonard. He wrote a, a fantastic book called uh, The Prescription for Patients, where he chronicled his Crohn's disease. And uh, he, in, in working up that uh, book used to tell me this story that I wanted to share with you. So uh, Kevin uh, proudly would tell people that he had uh, 22 providers. And one day he had an appointment with one of those providers, but he had to go for an ultrasound first. Uh, so he went off to his ultrasound and he was off to see one of his providers afterwards. And so he said, could I have a copy of my report? And the, the, and the technician following their professional uh, uh, guidelines said yes and printed off the report and folded the piece of paper in half and then proceeded to surround the entire piece of paper in staples, stapled it shut and handed it to Kevin. And Kevin looked at him and said, what am I hard of opening staples? Why did you do that? And, he, and the person said, well, I'm not allowed to give you the report, so I have to staple it. And to me, this is a bit of a metaphor of uh, what we do is uh, we sometimes staple, digitally staple um, our organizations shut from our, our, our patients. And I wanted to share one uh, quick other story, uh, which is another way we, in a sense, digitally staple uh, our organization shut. So my mother is 79. Um, she is uh, not able-bodied. Uh, she says from time to time, I think I should get myself one of those internet things. She is not digitally uh, savvy. And what I've noticed through COVID is we've essentially sealed her from healthcare because it's so hard if you do not have access to the internet. How do you get an appointment? How do you get a vaccine? How do you participate? How do you even look something up? Uh, and so there's a whole part of the population that I think we have uh, stapled away from healthcare uh, if we don't think about how we open this up. So, so what's the solution? And I always think about the Wagner model of at the heart of uh, creating good, uh, good care is uh, the building of the productive interaction between an informed patient and, uh, and a prepared healthcare team. Um, and I'll too just quickly draw on one example, um, which is a, a patient portal. So I've been involved in patient portal development for some time. Um, and uh, exactly what uh, Jillian said, there's often um, a lot of anxiousness around patient portals. And I think one of the uh, unique things uh, that uh, UHN was committed to right from the beginning was real-time access to all 
notes and, and, and reports that they could possibly uh, provide. Um, and there was a lot of conversation around this and people talked about creating anxiety for patients uh, by providing this information. One of the th things we did was did some research and it was clear that one of the most anxiety provoking times is not having information. Um, and, uh, and there's, uh, you know, there are things that we can do. So our, our patient portal, which launched enterprise-wide uh, in 2017, now actually as of this morning has 271,000 uh, patients uh, and people, I think last month we had uh, 40,000 patients who used it more, more than three times. Um, people come to it because they want access to their information. Um, and which frankly led to some changes in the way we provide care. So uh, we've been creating a set of competencies around digital compassion. And one of those is really ensuring that patients have uh, information the way that they would like it. So I'll leave you with the thought that we have to be careful not to digitally staple our organizations shut. I, I love the stapling metaphor and will steal it shame, shamelessly, um, uh, but it's, it, it, it goes to this question of how we're renorming or resetting norms in this space. When, when you come to it, and Brian, I'm gonna start with you, when you come to it as a practicing clinician and you think about a new patient uh, or onboarding a patient or, or, or working with a patient, how do you segment, how do you think about the mix of technology that you're gonna use with that individual patient? How do you segment what you're doing for, for the patient in front of you uh, in a thoughtful way? Do you, do you, do you structure it? Do you, do you make it up as you go? How do you do it? Yeah, I, well, I think we have to develop systems along this line. And the example that both Jillian and David have had with portals has helped us. We always should start with patient preference if we can because uh, people are going to have different needs and different preferences. So there's some starting points that I like to suggest from experience, but then negotiate. For a new consultation, if I've never seen somebody ever, the full thing is best, I think. Some video to see, some good voice, etc. Realistically, though, a lot of my patients, especially if I'm doing psychotherapy or follow-up, we find the video a distraction. And there's actually good evidence about this. About 30% of our cognitive attention is looking at our own image. Even if you turn that off, it's a distraction. Many of my patients and myself, I prefer for often the phone, just the phone. Um, text is actually quite good. An email where it's secure, where our systems allow the exchange of just information is also very useful. Um, and then of course, live face-to-face -face sometimes. And I think what you're really asking us is, how quickly can we understand what a good standard of care is and a mechanism that we agree on? A one-size-fits-all is not a good idea. Jillian or David, do either of you want in on this? Sure. I, I can um, speak from the clinician perspective as well. And so um, the other hat that I didn't talk about earlier was that I'm a nurse. And over the course of the pandemic, I gave a lot of vaccines <laughs> Uh, and a lot of vaccines to our inpatients. And so um, I imagine that folks on this call are aware that there's the COVAX system in which you document uh, COVID vaccines for all Ontarians, including our inpatients, which also we have to document on our electronic health record. Mm. And so in thinking about 
the technologies that I was using, this is in-person care, but I needed to document a lot of information in different places that these systems are not interoperable. They didn't speak to one another. There's no information flow. I needed to think about what can I set up ahead of time? What can I um, research sort of um, in the EHR ahead of time, get set up such that my in-person uh, interaction is as smooth as possible and I'm not spending all of it um, looking at an iPad. Um, or then opening something in the chart and spending a whole bunch of time clicking through something. No, no, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so it's this thoughtful process as to how I was going to interact with these various devices. And, and before the pandemic, RWJ, Robert Wood Johnson used to talk, and others used to talk about flipping the visit, right? The, the idea that, that there's, there's stuff that we could do teaching or in terms of patient education before the visit. Um, are, are we actively thinking about that stuff at this point in, as we implement these new systems? Maybe I'll go to David on this um, in terms of uh, uh, how, you're, how you're using this. Are you thinking about patient education materials that go out beforehand? Yeah, I, I, I would say that there's a lot of work, especially in our organization as we're moving to a new system, thinking about this and it happens a num number of different fronts. One is how do you prepare people uh, for that visit? Uh, make sure that they give you the information that you uh, you need and you give them the information they need. So that's part of that proactive uh, preparation and informing uh, folks. Uh, there's uh, the you know the actual information that and the exchange that happens during the uh, the appointment. And then you know, uh, the uh, data that you can collect afterwards, like uh, patient reported experience measures and those sorts of things. I, I think there's a lot of conversation in, around what uh, mechanisms and what structures should we have in place uh, for between visits. And I think that's a really important place to pay attention to. Uh, Brian talked about the compassionate activity of texting um, a, a, a patient, you know, how are you, how, how powerful that is. And there's been, you know, a, a great data published around the influence of that text um, in terms of getting people to be adherent to their medications and things like that. I, I think that's a really important point that the, the issue though, of course, is that in a world where visits are visits, doing little things is gonna cause someone in the system pain, either, either the payer or, or someone is gonna feel, but I agree with you, like, like compassion, particularly during COVID, we've all had the experience of people checking up with you and you know, with elderly relatives, even if they're not technologically literate, the small touch points uh, either either digitally um, or simply by telephone is in, is really important. I, I, just a bridge. Does anyone have experience with multimodal visits? I'm sorry, Brian. I see you have your hand up. Oh. Uh, but does, does anyone have experience with multimodal visits? I've been hearing that there's been a lot of that in pediatric and in elderly care where some part of the visit's still physical, but then other modes are being used at the same time. Go ahead, Brian. 
Very quickly, well, I was going to comment uh, provocatively that some of your problems of the little texting thing would go away if we paid for bundled care or integrated care and pathways of care, then I think we wouldn't have to worry about that because it would just be part of good care. Um, but yes, the, uh, the integrated multimodal assessment is used in geriatrics, for example, where, uh, for example, in long-term care, and I had this experience with my own parents, where there's multiple steps of an assessment that includes a consultation with family over video, for example, plus an in-person assessment of someone in the room, in this case, a nurse practitioner doing an examination and a physician at a distance. It was a little bit cumbersome in the beginning, but I think it was actually quite effective. It avoided a great deal of travel. It still had the uh, necessary parts and it gets away from this sort of controversial issue that well, you know, let's just do virtual, but never mind the physical exam or the interpersonal. I think that's actually a mistake to go too far so that we just have 100% yeah. virtual. And did you have other items you wanted to cover, Brian? Or, okay, because I think that, that this question, though, you know, I, I have this on the fee schedule, I have this mind that somewhere there's like this group of, of gnomes or, or people who are trying to figure out how much everything's worth on a per visit basis. And they're, they're kind of slowly going crazy as technology turns everything into electrons. And I'm hearing stories about people who do phone calls, but then switch to video at the end so they can pick the extra 15% up at yeah. the end of the thing, which, you know, it's just a human response. Well, this is a disaster if we go down the American model and we price each roll of toilet paper and each, you know, fork and spoon and every activity. We have to have integrated and bundled care where the models of payment pay for a whole episode of care. Okay, so who's going to stand up and say that though, Brian? Because that isn't necessarily what's come out of where, where we're going. Go ahead, David. Well, I wasn't going to necessarily stand up, but I, okay. I, uh, I will say that uh, in these multimodal visits, one of the really important things where we've gotten better, but we still have a lot of work to do is in making sure the data flows um, and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, if, if people are receiving care outside of, you know, their, their neighborhood, that we're thoughtful of this. And I'll give you a quick example. My, my father's having a surgical procedure uh, in a couple of days and, uh, and uh, he lives in Kitchener and the procedure is in Toronto. And there's been a fantastic approach to multimodal care, trying to minimize visits. But, you know, in our COVID world, he needed a PCR test. So um, they said, well, you have to drive down to Toronto to get a PCR test two days before and we said, why? Like, that doesn't make much sense. And he said, well, we can't guarantee the data will get there in time. And if you want your procedure, you have to come down and drive, you know, down. If you've driven down the 401 recently, you know that that's not an easy adventure. Um, and so uh, structurally, as we think about these things, uh, you know, as if we're going to design it in a compassionate way, Data actually is really important. And I just want to make sure that we spend some time talking about the data flow. Well, okay. So so let's go there. Um, I'm going to check actually. Jillian, did you want in on any of this before I go to data? Go to data. I'm ready for data. So, so you're, you're, you're all about the data. Actually, I do want to come back though to patient segmentation, but I'm going to come back to it later. I want to talk about young patients later, but on data, let, 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 let's go there. So is it time? Are we, are we going to make some broad commitments on data availability? David, you wanted to talk about it, so talk about it. Well, I think it's, I think it's essential. And we're, you know, we're starting to have conversation about 
uh, AI driven care. And I think, you know, there's room for the conversation around compassion and, a and AI. If we're going to do it right, we need to have access to uh, not only the, the, the whole patient story, but we need to have access to a lot of data. Uh, and, we, and we know that um, in data collection, sometimes we leave out very vulnerable population. And so we will design uh, very uncompassionate care if we don't pay attention to this data. So is it, is it time, Jillian, I'm gonna to go to you on this. Is it time to make a, uh, a firm commitment uh, that patients can have their records? So, so I, I think um, patients have had the right to receive and have access to the records through a very cumbersome process. And when we asked folks here, did you know you had that right? Um, at least half of them in the survey that we did said, no, we didn't know we could access them. Hmm. Now, having it electronically is just greasing the wheels on that, right? Uh, and making it more accessible. But I want to mention one thing that... Um, that is slightly a departure, but still on the data topic, which is that I'm not sure if we as healthcare providers yet know what to do with all the data that we're, get, that we're, we're um, receiving. We're often asking patients to fill out a number of surveys and questionnaires pre-visit these days, especially as we see more and more measurement-based care, particularly in mental health, but in other areas as well. And then patients are saying, but then no one talks to me about this. I filled all these questionnaires, and then where does it go? How does it um, make any sense for the care I'm receiving? So there's some sort of dot that's, that we're sort of missing there. There's a, there's a question in the Q&A about uh, interactive patient portal modalities. I'm gonna flip the question a little bit and say, and ask you guys frankly, whether you think that we can portal our way out of this because making the portal function as a good communications tool. I mean, I think portals have their place, don't get me wrong, but is portal, are we gonna be able to portal, portal our way out of this? Uh, I can start. Uh, so I, I'm on our portal. I have a lot of different health issues and I see professionals, I'm a patient too. I love the portal actually, and they will we'll be able to portal our way into more transparency. So right. the ability for patients who are digitally capable, that's another issue, but people, people who can use the internet, not including David's grandmother um, and many others, but if you can, I think it's amazing. However, it's not going to create a model of care by having a portal. So Jillian's issue about people needing to have integrated care to sit down with someone to interpret that, that's the model of care. And there's, there's no reduction in our need to create good models of care just because we have digital technology or a portal. And if I, can I get a quick piece on this one? Yeah. I, I actually uh, think we shouldn't spend very much time talking about portals at all. I think what we need to do is talk about the functionality and what we want people to be able to do and how to get them there. Yeah. So one of the important things about portal is it can be a mechanism to give people their health information quickly. And, you know, if we put in, I'll show my own bias there, but if you say, I'll give you your data, you can have it in 14 days. Thank you very much, because we want to be absolutely clear on our side. That That's that's not a useful portal for a patient from a patient perspective. They can't do anything with that data. They can't action it. Um, we might, uh, on the organizational side, feel good about that, but it's not creating a compassionate experience. So we need to get down to the brass tacks of what's actually going to enable 
people to participate and uh, be activated and have a comfortable and trusting relationship, not only with their provider, but their organization. So I'm gonna come back to the customer segmentation piece that we were talking about earlier and make make the point on, on portals and, and on some of these other technologies that paradoxically, and this, this is a point that a primary care physician friend of mine made, paradoxically, the people who can use these things think that they're often not the way that they would want to approach the system. So, so that the, he was commenting more on video. He said, paradoxically, my, my patients who, who know how to use video systems don't think that video is a very good way to start a conversation. They'd much rather be doing text or phone before they do that the same way teenagers do. And I, I, so I wanna come and I, I'm, I'm gonna make a joke first and then go to the younger segment and Jillian, I'm coming to you on this, but you know, digital compassion, I was telling friends I was doing this and they of course said, oh, you mean Tinder. And we got into this long conversation about what compassion and digital compassion means. And actually they, they, they made some, significant and sophisticated points about the fact that a lot of relationships, not just clinical relationships, but a lot of clinical relationships actually have been started during COVID virtually. And that we now have this question of, now, you know, one of the young people I was talking with is with a girlfriend of two and a half years who he met on Tinder. So they're, they're biased, but, but, how do we start relationships with the younger population and, and particularly in mental health? How do you keep in contact with people on a day-to-day -day basis when you're dealing with those populations? Okay, so I'm, I think there's a whole bunch there. <laughs> but I can say that I met my husband in an, online, um, in an online way as well. So maybe I'm in this side of things that is um, thinking that, uh, that there is some utility here to developing compassionate relationships. Uh, it's interesting. We have a, a group of we have a, a fairly large youth um, uh, care area um, and and program at at ChemH. And in speaking with folks in this area, uh, they mentioned folks aren't you know the folks they see are not particularly interested um, in using video texting maybe, um, but seeing people in person from time to time is actually quite interesting for for these individuals, which might be opposite to what we would think when you see people you know, on their phones all the time thinking, well, that must be the way that folks would wanna connect. And I know David's done some research amongst um, in the youth mental health space and perhaps has some ideas about that as well. But in terms of keeping in, in touch with people, we've explored all sorts of things, including having suites on site, which seems kind of funny to have digital suites on site where someone would come to CAMH, <laughs> on site to do some sort of digital interaction with a provider that might be off site. Um, but being able to provide some oh. um, interesting, interesting ways for people to connect uh, um, digitally. Right. So this is a real thing, but let's not get carried away with it. So I think it touches on one aspect only of quality that's accessibility. 
And there's no question I've been able to access patients more than ever. Jillian, I, you met your husband online, but I bet your relationship is, is really in person now, probably and not online. And so, uh, you know, the people that I treat that form relationships online and don't take them offline and into the real world sometimes really struggle. You know, the teens that are depressed, but their friends, their 107 Twitter friends or Facebook friends are not real friends. So I think it helps us with the accessibility piece, not so much more than that. The other thing is I'm careful about the generational assumptions. I know some people in their 60s, 70s that are amazing online and really like it. And I know kids, uh, there's a question in the comment about a young person yeah, who has anxiety online. And I think there's lots of young people that are really don't like the virtual environment. So I think we have to just watch the generation. So let me, let me back it up again and say customer segmentation. That's the first question I asked. Okay, so you've got a patient coming in. It's a new relationship. How do you, how do you formally organize this so that you're meeting the let's just say the quadruple aim, like how do you do cost-effective, quality, accessible care for the patient in front of you? And, you know, go ahead, David. So uh, one of the points I want to make is uh, digital compassion, when we think about it, happens, you know, at the individual organizational and community level. And uh, one of the things we need to think about is how we deal with this from an organizational perspective. Um, And there are principles uh, that are being developed around what should an organization do. And one of the things is, first of all, make a commitment that this is actually going to be a priority uh, issue. Um, And how do you start to listen to your patients? So one of the things that UHN has done that I'm proud of is we actually have a digital patient consultation group. I think it's made up of 15 or 20 uh, patients who uh, get together on a monthly basis and advise us on key issues, virtual care, our portal, uh, and so on. And so the point is here, we involve our stakeholders in designing that. Uh, We need to do the same with our our clinicians. And so uh, co-creating that experience as much as possible and really listening to uh, what is critical, what is important. Um, And then at the individual level, constructing that in a way that preference, uh, there's opportunity to hear preference and you don't get tunnel vision around the way you're doing. So I'm going to push back a little bit, David, and I say this with with affection in my heart because I was was born at UHN. Uh, But... (laughs) You guys don't answer phones within four rings and the average telephone message tape is well over a minute and a half and always includes the number 5953155. And, you know, it's not like, like there are basic and, and you know what, that's unfair. I shouldn't hit UHN on that because it's not just you guys. We as a profession are terrible in terms of customer service, no one thinks that it's important to answer phones within four rings. And I will tell you that is in the rest of the world, and if I dare say the real world, that is an expectation. How, how do we, like, is that, just, is that just something we're not gonna do? Brian, well, you're nodding, or go, go ahead, David. No, sure. I just said, I mean, I'll let Brian address it in a second, but I, we absolutely have to pay attention. And one of the, you know, we have limited resources. And so one of the things we need to do is, 
and really have these conversations around what's important. And before I hand it over to Brian, I had to phone my mother's uh, uh, primary care physician yesterday, and I was absolutely shocked. I phoned him, somebody answered the phone. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> Uh, that, that is encouraging, though. And you know what? In fairness, um, uh, I have noticed on my, uh, I'm, I'm part of a large FHT, um, and I've noticed that they have really got their act together on the phone side uh, and done a, done a, um, a much better job. Brian, you wanted to Yeah, know quickly, just two quick points. So I have to be, we have to be clear what we're talking about. So one is channels of communication. My feeling there's too many channels of a communication now. There's too many ways to access. And if we're not going to use the phone, we should just disconnect it. Like, I think what we should do is be clear how you access and when. We do have some integrated pathways where there's one number to call. You're given it at discharge. You call. There's any problem. There's a navigator. We do know how to do it, but I think we need to promote those. The other thing is I don't think people know how to use the technologies well either. I just took a course with a BBC Newsreader on how to properly do video. For example, Will, I am not looking at you right now, except I'm looking at your picture. And she pointed out if you want to make eye contact, this is not eye contact. This is eye contact with you. And if we care about the way we use the way of interacting, we have to learn how to do voice, how to use video properly, how to use the telephone properly, how to use text properly. And that's all development. I have to ask the question in the chat, which is, which is well said, you know, underneath all of this, are these systems, uh, you guys are, I don't know, uh, anyway, somewhere from some Midwestern state, each of your institutions has purchased a wonderful electronic medical record. Bob Wachter from UCSF wrote uh, a great book on this. Um, uh, do, do doctors really all hate the underlying technology and how are we going to make systems that were first coded in the 60s, 70s and 80s sing and dance and do all the things you guys are talking about, Jillian, I was going to you anyways, go ahead. <laughs> so we, we did a, a survey last year to ask essentially physicians, but also nurses and other health disciplines, you know, how satisfied are you with these, with our system? Um, we've had a, you know, a hem stage seven EHR for a number of years now. So uh, it's not new. And what we expected based on Atul Gawande's article of, you know, why doctors hate their computers was, you know, to receive a whole bunch of complaints. And, and we did receive some complaints, but actually the data was better than we expected. Well, that's um, so uh, there was a lot of efficiencies, a lot of more accurate information. You could read the information. So these are the kinds of things that uh, we were shared, uh, and this is with one particular kind of technology. Now we have a whole list. I think we have something like 50 plus requests to change aspects of the health record system um, that we're running through and trying to prioritize, which is a huge challenge. Um, so that's where we're going. And how do we make this more efficient and how do we actually get the pebbles out of the shoes that we call them, the, the little annoyances um, in using these systems. So, and that's Cerner, that's a Cerner HIMS level seven question. Correct. Yeah. And, and is, by the way, is there a HIMS level eight or do we just stop? We just stop right now. Okay. Good, good. Well, <laughs> and that's it. check, check that's done. Good. But we should be developing level. that, right? Is that the digital compassion layer, right? Well, and, and what does, and what does, what does level eight, nine, 10, I mean, 
Um, I would have thought that HIMS would be like the iPhone and we should be at HIMS level 13 now. Probably someone's thinking about that. David, you're smiling and you want in, go ahead. Where, where are you on your HIMS levels? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, okay. I, uh, I don't I, know what I'm at. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I see my boss online. So, <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, I will say this, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, these systems are just tools. Uh, what we need to do is pay attention to the intersection of, you know, the, the care, how we're preparing people to use the tools and how the tools function. And I, I do think that we've often forgotten about the fact that we actually have to go through a process of helping people uh, through, this, through this process. And education and training is, is so important. Um, and we did a scoping review a couple of uh, years ago, looking at large electronic health records. And we thought there'd be lots of literature there. We found 17 papers uh, related to best practices in education in an industry that spends, I don't know, billions of dollars on these systems. And we don't have evidence, enough evidence on how to do this appropriately. Um, and it's not just providers, it's patients too. So uh, we have to pay attention to all aspects of this and not just expect people are gonna wake up one day and say, I know how to use these tools, it's fine. And I didn't do justice to the question in the chat because the, the, the questioner also made the important point that with the HHR, the health human resources challenges and the wellness challenges that we are all living with in 2022, that there's a whole nother dimension here, right? I mean, I dare say, you know, 20 years ago when we used to think about technology coming in, we thought about it as saving costs. I don't think anyone's worried about job loss anymore. I think people are just worried about keeping up with where we're going. Brian, you want in? Go ahead. Yeah, Eric Topple's book on AI talks about the gift of time. The entire book is predicated on the last chapter that says this will be amazing for everyone because we'll get all this time back and then we'll be able to do all these humanitarian things. Well, that won't be true if the main indicator is efficiency and time pressure and we just say, let's see twice as many people or as faster. There's also a, a chat question about this. I mean, I think what's really critical here is the triple, quadruple, quintuple aims. We need to have metrics for all of them. So if we're going to put compassion here, we're going to have to have some outcome metrics that are beside efficiency and cost and saving and accessibility and everything else, or it won't be measured, and then it won't be valued. And Anna Reardon has, has said self-reflection is also a valuable tool as well. Um, I'm going to broaden it just a bit, Anne's question just a bit, or Anne's non-question just a bit, and say patient role in self-care, DIY, uh, and how that helps on the HHR issue and wellness. Any thoughts? I can start by saying yeah. it's so hard to navigate right now. So if you want to, uh, if you have a condition, if you have something that you, if, let's just say you want cognitive behavioral therapy, or if you want to do mind, that's an extreme of one end, but mindfulness is another example. And you want to look for an app to support that. You know, good luck. There are some great ones out there. There are some crappy ones out there as well. And it's yeah. not always intuitive for folks to know what they can actually choose from. So figuring out how we manage this maze of what to select in the first place, I think is something um, that is a big challenge. Right. 
Yeah, I sat on a panel with someone from Canadian Standards Association. It was about AI and the fact that it's an unregulated space. And to Jillian's point, there's going to be some really scary apps that have databases made with like the terrible story of the dermatology app that was created with white people only, you know, that is this kind of thing. And David and Jillian both alluded to this. I think we're going to need standards and we're probably going to need recommended apps. So CAMH and others may need to recommend uh, approved applications for chatbots. We may need to actually critically look at uh, evaluating like healthcare technology does now with other technologies, all of these communication technologies. And one of the problems of the big EMRs is a monopoly. I'm going to say it probably unpopular, but it's a lot easier to improve um, market when you have actual competitiveness. Yeah. So, um, you know, when there's only one provider and that's your only choice, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. I'm just going to say hashtag apps formulary, check it out. Uh, and uh, thank you all, uh, or my thanks, and I'm going to just hand it right back over to Matt here. Uh, and, uh, but you've been great as panelists and really appreciate it. A very passionate uh, subject and uh, a one wonderful conversation. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I can see from the uh, interaction from the audience that uh, they also enjoyed it. Obviously, we have much more to cover. Um, I will, again, remind everybody, this is a group who's on social media, and you should follow them, and uh, feel free to reach out and uh, continue the conversation. Other than that, everybody have a wonderful day, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.